Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ Church. My name is Michael, and I'm going to be leading us in opening up the Word of God today. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at a story that is, uh, I don't know, maybe familiar to some of you. It's usually described using four words, Jesus calms the storm. You ever heard it before? It's kind of an interesting one. Uh, I want to mostly jump right in and kind of see what it says and, and start unpacking it without much, uh, much getting in the way of that. I do want to say two things, though, just by way of getting us ready to hear it. First thing is confession. This is my favorite story in the Bible. This is like Bible candy for me. I love this event. I just always have. There's something about it that speaks to my soul. Second thing I want to say about it is um, if you... If you have ever felt like the world was just kind of spinning out of control, if you've ever been anxious or worried, if you've ever been afraid, if you've ever looked at the headlines or Twitter or inside your own heart and thought, you know what word I would use to describe this? Probably chaos, instability. If any of these things are true of any of you, then this story is for you. Comes at the end of Mark chapter 4. We're just going to read short person, handful of verses, verses 35 through 41. Here's what happened. It says, That day when evening came, he, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. They were right at the edge of a body of water. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other, also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. And asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. The story's so short and happens so fast that it's kind of easy to miss. You know, like once you realize where we are with Jesus on this body of water in the middle of a boat that's in the middle of a storm, boom, story's over. We move on. But let's slow down a little bit and try to, if we can, with our imaginations and a few words, picture something of the scene here. They're, they're at the edge of a body of water. It's called the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is in a boat. Now, the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's, it's not huge, but it's not small either. It's this body of water that's sort of shaped like a harp. Think of a small circle, if you will. And there are two, two bodies of water in the land of Israel. The Dead Sea is down south. That's where you can like float on the salt. Sea of Galilee up north. And it's about 12 miles long by 6 miles wide. So decent size, but on a clear day, you can pretty much see all the way across it from any point. It sits down in a basin that's surrounded by mountains and hills. They're on the northern part of this. And they're in a boat, and Jesus is teaching from a boat in the water, and all the people are on land, and behind them is this sort of 12 by 6 mile stretch of water with different villages and towns and settlements and cities all the way around. 
So in the boat that we can actually kind of get a visual of because it's probably a lot like one that was discovered in 1986. Take a look at this picture. This is a boat that was found in the seabed of the Sea of Galilee from around the time of Jesus' life. Now, I wouldn't suggest, and I don't really think anybody would, that this is the boat that this happened, and no one can know that, but it's the kind of boat. These boats were about 25 to 30 feet long, about four feet deep, seven feet wide. You'd usually have four to six rowers, two or three on each side, who would kind of steer the thing. It was enough for about 12 to 15 people. So Jesus is in the water, standing in this boat, and the reason why he's standing in this boat, the reason why he's been teaching from it, that would be kind of weird, is because there were a lot of people there. And he had been on the land, but there was crowds coming, and they couldn't see him, couldn't hear him, and so he got into the water and sat out a little bit so that his acoustics, you know, the acoustics could carry his voice to the people and he could be seen by them. So he finishes teaching and normally you would think that, you know, after you finish teaching, you dock the boat, you get things ready and then you take off. He doesn't. Straight from teaching, they just leave. He says, let's go over to the other side. And so they take him just as he was in that boat and they head out. They head along the water. Apparently Jesus was a bit tired. So he took himself a little nap on a cushion and a furious squall came up. It's a funny phrase, just great storm might be a bit more literal of a translation. This storm happened. And again, the geography helps us understand this. Picture this room as this sort of body of water and those ledges right there as the top. There's these mountains, hills all around and, uh, and the wind would sweep down over the mountains, usually pretty cold wind. And when that wind was cold and when it met the warm wind coming off of the water, the winds would collide and they would create these storms. They would come fast and they would come hard, quick and strong. Even today, Galilean fishermen call those winds that come off the eastern side of the slopes sharkia, which is Arabic for shark. You get the point. And so these storms will come up and this one came up. And I like to picture the disciples' thought process in this, you know. I think they probably went from, at first, man, we can handle this. It's all right. We got this. Like, we're fishermen. We're going to be fine. And after about two minutes, we're not fine. We can't handle this. (laughs) We're going to die like this is more than we bargained for. And then about 30 seconds after that, where is Jesus? Are are you serious? He's still sleeping. And here's Jesus. I mean, this is a pretty serious story, but it's got this one tiny bit of comic relief in the form of a pillow right there in the boat. Like he's sleeping on a cushion. There's a lot about this story that impresses me. There's a lot about Jesus here that I say, man, that's pretty cool. One of the things that impresses me, maybe not the main one, but one of them is his ability to sleep in intense circumstances. Amen? Yeah. Like he's out too. And I don't know if it's sacrilegious, but I wonder, is he twitching? Is he snoring? If Jesus is snoring, can you hear it over the storm? You know what I mean? Like these kind of things, is he drooling? And you've been there where you're just knocked out, tired, cold, gone. I, uh, I have two kids, and you know they sleep pretty hard. And a couple, uh, I don't know, when was the last week or so, my son comes into our room in the middle of the night, and he just wants to come up and snuggle. So he comes up, and we're snuggling, and it's fine until I get elbowed in the face, right? I kind of wake up, startled a little bit, put his arm back down. Five minutes later, sure enough, I watch this happen. He's like, gag, elbow again. And so I'm like fighting with this person who's not even awake. You know what I mean? Like he's asleep, and I'm angry. And, and the disciples are like, He's asleep, and what, what in the world? Like, Jesus, don't you care if we drown? They wake him up. They shake him. And I don't know if he was agitated. I, you know, when I get woken up quickly, I kind of am. I don't know if he rolled his eyes. I don't know what he's, how he looked at them. Or I, I, just, I, I wonder, did he stretch? Ugh. Did he yawn? So I don't know what he did first, but I know what he did eventually. Because the story tells us that he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And it was completely calm. 
in the original, again, it's a great storm and then literally great calm. The intensity of the storm was matched only by the stillness that followed. And have you ever been in one of those places where it's just so still and so quiet? It's almost eerie. You know that feeling? Yeah. It's uncomfortable. It's strange. It's kind of, it's like cool, but like weird and a bit unsettling. If you've ever um, like hiked in the hills or the mountains, you know that point when you get just far enough away where you can no longer hear the hum of the lights or the whisper of the cars going along the highway and it's just quiet and all you can hear is the whistle of the trees blown through the winds and any water that may be running nearby. You know what I'm talking about? And in this moment, even those basic sounds, they just stop. And I wonder, like how long Jesus just let the silence go? How long he paused before he said what he said next, which is, why are y'all so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I think it's interesting that he doesn't rebuke them or chide them or scold them for exaggerating the danger in their situation. He doesn't say, ah, this storm's not that bad. He just shows, I'm actually this good. Like, that's the object lesson here. He does rebuke them for not knowing better. It's like, y'all should have known this. Have you not seen enough? Have I not shown you? That when I'm here, we're good. Like, I'm good, you're good, we're good. Would you just, why are you not more relaxed? This is crazy. If you really stop and consider that Jesus just rebuked his disciples for not being relaxed in the middle of a sea storm. That's what he does. To be honest, don't even know if they really heard much of what he was saying at this point because the text tells us they are terrified. I like this. They 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 were scared when the storm was raging. They were terrified when the storm stopped. Literally, it says, again, they feared a great fear. So the great storm matched by the great calm matched by their great fear. You got to wonder, though. I wonder sometimes, like, what did y'all expect? You had the presence of mind to wake him up. What did you want him to do, you know? Did you just hope he was really good at rowing? <laughs> was, that, was that the end game here? Did you just figure, like, we're all going to die, but I'd at least like Jesus to be alive when it goes down? Like, what? Were you just too panicked to think it through? What did you want him to do? And I don't know what they wanted him to do or what they expected from him, but after what went down, went down, they asked one another, who is this? That's the question. Who is this? And then noted, even the wind and the waves obey him. I'd like to, I think it will be helpful, I'd like to orient our, our reading of this story around two fairly common words in a context like this, the word power and the word faith. I'd like those to be our words for today, power and faith. First of all, power. What do you see when you look at Jesus in the boat on the calm sea? You see power, that's for sure. And I don't know if you love power, hate power, want power. I don't know how you feel about power, but it's not going anywhere. And it's not a complicated idea. Power literally just means the ability to do something. If you can do something, then you have power to do that thing. People do things. We get this. We don't often notice it unless somebody's doing something that we can't do and we find impressive. I was talking this last week to a friend of mine who writes stories, writes novels, and uh, he had just published his first story, and it's this story set in ancient times about a, a Viking village and a dragon and a young boy who fights it, and, and he's just describing all of this world in detail that came straight from his imagination, and when people do this, I just, creative people, I'm just, I don't know, I don't understand. That's awesome. 
When I see people doing stuff with instruments that I myself could never, could, I just, I don't know how to do that. Or when I see some of y'all who work with kids just naturally so gifted, not just your own kids, but other people's kids, and you work with them well. I don't know if you're impressed by the same things I'm impressed with, but my point is all of us at some point have asked the question, how'd you do that? And that's, I feel like, the question that I want to ask of Jesus. How'd you do that? Like we observe unique power and we wonder where it comes from. Some people can do things that few people are capable of. And Jesus shows himself capable of doing what no one else can. This is power. But what kind of power? Like power to what end? Where does it come from and where is it going? It's impressive, fine, but what does it mean? Who who in the universe can command the wind and waves and sea? Who is this person? I think the disciples, I think they started to get it. I think maybe that's why they were so freaked out by it. And the reason I think they started to get it is because they have Bibles and they read them regularly. What we call the Old Testament was their Bible. And when you look at the Old Testament, if the question is, who has power to control the waves and wind? The answer is, oh, there's only one person. Let me read you some Psalms. Psalm chapter 65. This is verses 5 to 7. The psalmist in praise says, You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior. We're talking about God. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of the nations. Huh. Psalm 89 is similar, except it specifically says, is anybody else like God in the universe? Here's what it says. Psalm 89, 6 to 9. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He's more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Yeah. And the one that Elijah read just a few moments ago, Psalm 107, it feels like it was almost written for an occasion like this. Let me read it again. Psalm 107, 23 and following says, Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to their depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. This is God. And if the Psalms are enough to prove the point that there's only one person in the universe who calms seas and his name is God, think about this. There's another story that sort of kind of seems similar to this one. Maybe you've even thought of it as you've looked at this one. You ever heard of Jonah? the prophet who ran away from God. Think about the story of Jonah. In both stories, you have a body of water, and on this body of water, you have a boat. And the boat becomes a little bit rocky when a storm comes out of nowhere. And even though the boat is peopled by experienced sailors, they're overwhelmed. Like They don't know what to do. And the main character, oh, he's asleep. So many parallels, and yet this is where the analogy breaks down. Because if you know Jonah, you know if you don't, here's the story. Jonah's the bad guy, and he is not supposed to be doing what he's doing. And when they throw him overboard into the water, God calms the sea. And there's the point of the non-parallel. Who calms the sea? Well, it was God. Here it's Jesus. Indeed. Indeed, there's only one person in the universe who has the ability to do this, and most of the time you can't see him. 
So what we see when we look at Jesus is no less than the personal power of God in human skin. And this power in this cool story is not just about Jesus flexing some divine muscles, trying to look cool. It's about bringing order to chaos. It's about taming that in our world which is most unpredictable, uncontrollable, and dangerous. See, the reason why the seas are such an appropriate object lesson for this demonstration of power is that in the ancient world, the sea represented exactly that, the part of our world that we can't control and that threatens us. It's dangerous. Sea monsters, scary. Hurricanes, scary. These things are frightening because they fight back and what are we going to do? It's not just their world. We're, We're not really that different. We don't have the same mythology as they do, but the sea symbolizes still for us powerful forces that are dangerous. If you challenge them, you do so at your own risk. Like why else is the Titanic a thing if not to tame the seas, you know? And it's not just the Titanic. Think about our stories like Jaws. There's an iconic movie. Or uh, a Moby Dick. Like there's a story that we've all heard of. We've never read it, but we've heard of it. <laughs> you know? And it's, it's not just like back in the day either. It's not just like this used to be a thing. You ever heard of Finding Nemo? You know? Like, yeah, even the fish have a hard time making it through the ocean to get to the other side. And no, most recently, Moana. I mean, come on. Like, we, can't get, we, we don't get sick of this. This theme of water being threatening, and yet at the same time, it's this force that if we can somehow harness it, we can bring peace and life and restore what's fallen apart. And one more thing. Have you ever, have you ever psychologized the fact that we name our tropical storms? We personalize them almost like they're sea monsters. Irma, Steve. Harvey, Katrina. We, we named them. Why? Well, maybe because it's just water's frightening when it's not staying still. Like when it's in my glass and I'm drinking it, all good. But when I'm in its glass, it's just not very safe. And it just mo- it moves and goes and it's big and it's just all encompassing. And most ancient cultures in the, in, the, in, the, in the world of the Old Testament especially, but virtually all of them had some story about their God ascending to the throne of the universe by taming the sea, defeating a sea monster and ordering the waves, these kinds of things. And this is why Genesis presents creation as God bringing order to this watery mass that up to that point was formless and void. And this is why in the Exodus that God liberates his people, he chooses sovereignly to liberate his people by parting the waters and helping his people on through the middle. And in this case, the body of water in Mark chapter 4 doesn't even really deserve to be called a sea. It's a lake, and it's not even that big of a lake. It's just there, and that Mark says, now I'm going to go ahead and call it the sea, just to make sure and capture the larger point, just to make sure you don't miss the meaning of this moment that all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Jesus, who has come to tame the beast, to calm to see, to bring order to chaos, and to restore what feels like it's coming unglued. This is power. Power, as they say, that money can't buy and Hollywood can only imitate. Power that's unmatched in any history, human or divine. Who is this person? At whose command the winds stop and the waves immediately recline? And here's the necessary next question. What if this story is actually true? What if Jesus calms the storm is for real? What do we do then? Where do we go from somewhere like this? Now, here's my issue with this, with my favorite story in the Bible. I love this story. I have as long as I can remember. I don't always know what to do with it. In a lot of parts of Scripture, I read them, I study them. I know exactly what to do next. I don't know where to go from here. 
And I think the trick in many ways is to figure out how, not, how to take it seriously, how not to treat it like a fairy tale. Because that's what comes natural to us, treat it like a fairy tale. And I don't mean, I don't mean like you don't believe it. I mean, maybe there are some in here, I bet probably there are some of us in here who have a hard time even believing something like this happens. And we struggle in large part because we live in a world where, you know, science sort of naively presumes to presumes to explain everything, but like I assume you can think beyond all that. Well, I, did, I don't mean that. I mean like, okay, I believe that it's true, but then what? Where do, I, where do I go from here? What do you do with a story whose point is that God is not intimidated by anything and that when he's present, we have good reason to be similarly inclined? I, you know, so speaking of the Titanic, you know, we know the story. Many of us have seen the movie. And there's this scene from the movie that uh, most of us you know, sort of picture in our minds where Jack is at the bow of the ship. You know what I'm talking about? And he leans over the edge, and you've got the waters raging. And you remember what he says. What does he say? I'm king of the world. We love this scene because it's just kind of romantic and enchanted and just so neat. And it's fairly harmless because we know it's not true. Like even within the story. We know he's not actually claiming to be king of the world in any real sense of the word. And that's fine. But my worry is that our sensibilities are trained to bring the same assumption to this story of Jesus, who says, I'm king of the world. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's so enchanted and romantic and cute. And he's like, no, 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 really, I'm king of the world. Like, you live in a world over which I enjoy supreme power. I'm not playing, people. Like, this is true. That's what I feel like he's saying to me from this story. And so let me put it like this. Here, I think, is what we're supposed to try to do. we got to let this story define our reality. That's, that's the goal. You heard the quote from uh, Max Dupree, the leader who said that the first responsibility of leadership, the first responsibility of the leader is to define reality. That's what I think Jesus is doing here. I think he's defining reality. I think he's saying to his disciples and to anybody else who has ears to hear, you live in a world ruled by a God who put on human skin and displayed his power by coming the sea. That's real. But still, where do we go? We do. I do think that the disciples end this story in a place that's better than where they started it. It's not that they're not afraid at all. It's just that their fears are properly ordered. At least so it seems. Maybe the secret to life is not having no fear, but fearing the right things, or thing, as it were. I, I don't hear a whole lot anymore. I don't hear a whole lot these days about fearing God. Like, it, maybe you do in your circles, but it feels like it used to be more of a thing that people talked about. Like, I don't even hear it much in our context, in our sort of church Christian-type circles. It's just, it's not, it's not often said. You don't hear, I was just, you know, a real God-fearing man, real God-fearing woman. It's okay. I don't hear that very commonly. It feels like, uh, feels like fear God goes with honor the king, you know? And since the only honoring of royalty we do is in tabloids and Netflix, it just, just kind of gets washed away a little bit. I don't know, what do, we, do, we, do we feel like this is just passe or something? Or are we maybe so caught up in emphasizing the boundless love of God that we forget that the reason why that love is so radically transformational is that it comes from a person who can calm seas without so much as lifting a finger? Like, are we forgetting that if we found ourselves in the direct presence of this person, Jesus, our most likely response would be to fall on our faces trembling because we would be afraid of standing in front of him? If you don't fear God, you'll fear anything. But if you do fear God, then you have what it takes to fear nothing else. And that, I think, is the secret to following Jesus, to faith. There's our other word. That, I think, is the secret to trusting in him.
An awe for him leads to a trust in him that also, by the way, I think is what leads to peace. Strange as it seems, maybe we need a third word today. This story is a story about peace. And when we get this, if we think about it, if you, um, if you can see that the expert in the room is fine, then usually you're fine. So when you take your kids to those little exhibitions where there's like, you know, somebody up front handling snakes, and you're thinking, isn't that poisonous? It's like, oh, it's fine. Okay, all right, go on up there, Johnny. You know what I mean? Like, what? Or the zoo, like, I, there's a gap between me and the line, but I think I could jump across it. Oh, no, 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 it's, they won't jump. It's fine. Okay, if you say so. I think that that dynamic is some of what's going on in the story. Jesus wants you to know that he's here, even when it doesn't seem like he's here, and he's fine. And if your awe for him is properly in place, then you're not going to be afraid of anything else. If you fear God properly, you fear nothing, which is good, because if you fear anything, he's just not going to trust him. Am I making sense? I hope I'm making sense. This fear dynamic with faith, and I think this fear issue is the reason why many of us will hear the call of Jesus to this uncomfortable journey, and we will choose instead to content ourselves with comfort, or to distract ourselves with responsibilities, or to invest ourselves in people who don't demand the same things that Jesus demands. We're afraid. We don't say that because we're grown-ups, but we're afraid of what we may lose of how we may look to someone. In the end, we're afraid that Jesus won't take care of us. So what makes you afraid? Is it, uh, is it ISIS? Is it Washington, D.C. for one reason or another? Is it 2019? Maybe it's right now, 2018. Is it a record of your past sins? Is it career confusion or unpaid bills? Is it the worry that maybe your company or your industry has no future? What is it for you that keeps you up at night? What is it for you that produces in you the anxiety that all of us probably at some point feel? Maybe for you it's macro problems like economic injustice and widespread abuse. Or maybe it's a little bit closer to home. Something like a hard conversation that you've been avoiding. Or something as regular and daily as dropping kids off at the school not knowing what's going to happen to them while they're not under your care. Now, I'm not equating all of these things, and gosh, I hope I'm not sanitizing this story too much. I really do. Maybe it's our pale fears that, maybe it's our pale fears that expose a lack of deep awe in our hearts for God. I don't know. Maybe this is true of me. These events happened in AD 31, thereabouts. That's when the story took place. Mark is writing about them in his gospel in AD 68, 69. That's when he published this book. He wrote it to Christians in Rome. It wasn't a very desirable thing to be a Christian in Rome in the late 60s. Have you ever ever heard of Nero? He was an emperor. He's the one who's responsible for the stories you may have heard about Christians being sent into arenas, sent into stadiums where wild beasts could gore them for entertainment. He's the one who would set Christians, he would pour oil over them, set them on fire, and impale them on a stick so that they could light his evening parties. Like, that's what's happening in Rome. The storms are raging in Rome where Mark is writing this, and Mark says, guys, Jesus has this. We're okay. He's fine, so we can be fine. And... By comparison, our problems? But I do think that whatever makes us afraid is answered by this story. Whatever it is. Big, small. And I think that it is particularly relevant at points when it becomes difficult for us to trust that Jesus' words are wise. I can, I can think about what that might be like in, in Rome for the original readers. You still want me to follow this person? 
I know what it looks like in my life and in some of yours. You still want me to follow this person? One of the things at stake in this portion of Mark's gospel is credentials. Does Jesus have the necessary credentials to be trusted as our teacher, as the one who's going to be our authority, who's going to tell us what to do? In Mark chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gets in a a sort of set of arguments with religious leaders, all the different groups. And the question that's raised in these encounters, first of all, Jesus is really bold. The question that's raised in these encounters, many of which we've studied over the last year, is who should we listen to? Which one of these two people or two groups, like who has access to God and his power and his will and his wisdom? Who should we follow? And at the end of this, Jesus has been pretty audacious and his family comes to him and says, you just need to chill out a little bit. And he doesn't chill out a little bit. He doesn't back down. He doubles down. And then he preaches in chapter four, a sermon full of parables that we've unpacked over the last couple months. It's okay if you missed it for right now, you can go back and catch them later. The main point of all of them are essentially, if you want God, you gotta listen to me. He's not messing around. He's saying very clearly, I'm the access point. Here I am. I am God come to you to tell you what is true and good and beautiful. Are you going to listen? That's the question at hand here. And then our story, even ours, drips with hints along the same line. Don't miss the details. They pushed off from the front of the classroom. There's an intentional connection here of Jesus the storm calmer to Jesus the teacher. And in case we missed that, they called him teacher. Not Lord, don't you care if we drown? Not Christ, not King. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And if that's not enough, don't also miss that the the storm itself models a proper response to the words of Jesus. When he speaks, you do what it says. And the question that comes off of this story is, listen, if the wind and waves think it's a wise thing to obey what Jesus says, who are we to think any different, you know? We know a person capable of what no one else can do. But the point isn't, look at Jesus, isn't he great? And the point isn't, Jesus is God, and that's the end of the story. And the point isn't, if you just say Jesus, all your problems are going to melt away. That's the temptation. That's the temptation. And to take from this story that Jesus will always calm the storms that threaten our safety seems to me to be a wrong reading because he doesn't. I do believe that this story gives us a picture, a preview, that's the word, a preview of our ultimate future, of what he'll do when he comes back to finish everything. I do think that one day what happens to this sea will happen to our hearts and minds and relationships and the entire world. I do think that that's part of what's going on here, but that's not the message for today, not alone anyway, because the problems of today will probably be here tomorrow unless Jesus decides to come back. So what does it mean today? The payout for today, for this era of existence, is that the disciples never had sufficient reason to be afraid. Even before Jesus calmed the storm, they lived in a world where wind and waves need not cause panic. That, I think, is the hinge. They wanted Jesus to fix things. He did it this time, but more than anything, he just wanted them to trust him. See, Jesus would still be Jesus. He'd still be powerful and faithful and loving even if he had let them die in the storm. He'd just bring them back out the other side. And our proper response to this event is not so much to look for a repeat, to say, Jesus, get me out of this stadium. I don't think I can handle this. To say, Jesus, this fire is hot. No, our response is not to beg him to flex his muscles and relieve our stress. It is rather to realize that even in the midst of the chaos, we have better reasons to rest than to panic. Even when he seems inactive, if Jesus is in our midst, then we have no need to fear. 
And if this is true in A.D. 31 and in A.D. 69, it's no less true in 2018. Even when he seems inactive, if Jesus is in our midst, then we have no reason to fear. As I was looking through some of the Old Testament scriptures that describe a God who tames the seas, we read earlier from Psalm 89, and I came across this verse that captured for me how God is calling me to respond to this text. 89.15 is not coming up on the screen, so let me read it to you. It says, blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you. Here's the next phrase. Blessed are those who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. That seems to me to be the thing. I played this game this last week where as I thought about how to, what to do with this, this great story, I would think about specific moments in the upcoming week. I would just pick a day and time, like Tuesday at 5 a.m. or Wednesday at 8 or Thursday at 2.30, and I would just ask myself, what am I going to be doing in that moment? What are you going to be doing Thursday afternoon at 4 o'clock p.m.? And I just sort of went there in my head, and I tried to guess, here's what I might be doing, and, and I just sort of surveyed all of the realities around me. All the things that were present in my life, or I think will be present in my life, that kind of de- de- define and determine my reality. And it's not a matter of escaping those, but after kind of thinking through those, I stepped back and I meditated on what difference it would make if I took seriously the fact that before and behind and above all these very real facts stands the fact that I will dwell in that moment in the presence of a person who enjoys supreme power over the entire world. It was interesting. I encourage you to give it a shot. It was kind of weird, but kind of fun. It didn't often change what I would do, but it often changed how. So think it through. And when those moments start to come at you one after another, just stop for a second. Look up and consider the fact that you live in a reality determined by the fact that long time ago, one day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.